0: I'm Roxanne Cody, and welcome to Just the Right Book. We're a podcast for curious, enthusiastic, and engaged readers. Our job is to help you discover new books in all genres and give you unique insights into your favorite authors, keep you up to date with what's going on in the literary world. On our last episode, um, you would have heard my conversations with the founders of Celadon, Deb Futter and Jamie Rab. Today you will hear my conversations with the author of their debut title, The Silent Patient, and the author is Alex Michelides. So listen to the conversation. It'd be fun to see how they came to publish this book and then see how you feel about the book. It was it was really wonderful to talk to him. So hope you enjoy this. How would you like to publish a first novel, and have these reviews. This may be a first novel, but it has the pace and finesse of a master, says BBC. That rarest of beasts, the perfect thriller, this extraordinary novel set my blood fizzing. I quite literally couldn't put it down, says A.J. Finn. The silent patient sneaks up on you like a slash of intimidating shadow on a badly lit street. This author has crafted a totally original, spellbinding, psychological mystery, so quirky, so unique, that it should have its own genre, says David Baldacci. Well, these kind of reviews, and I could have read you another dozen, this is just what happened to Alex Michelides with the launch of his first debut novel called Silent Patient, which landed number one on the New York Times bestseller list in its first week. I knew it was going to be a wild, riveting ride from the opening sentence. Alicia Berenson was 33 years old when she killed her husband, is the opening line. We then learn that Alicia, a well-known painter, kills her famous photographer husband, Gabrielle. Alicia then goes and remains silent through her arrest, trial, and ultimate institutionalization in The Grove, a facility for the criminally insane. Enter a psychotherapist named Theo Faber, who is obsessed with her case and manages to get a job at The Grove with the hope of uncovering her motive. And so begins the rocket ship of a psychological thriller. Alex joins us today from England, where he earned his MFA and has been best known as a screenwriter. That is until maybe right now. Well, welcome, Alex.
1: Hello. Hi. Thank you very much for having me on.
0: So it is a logical first question to ask you, I think, but you are the launch title for a new imprint called Celadon, which is an imprint of Macmillan uh Sam Copeland, oh, who is your agent in England, said your novel was literally a slush pile submission, and you are now uh the hot new best selling novelist so aside from the congratulations, tell us how this even came to be well,
1: thank you very much um there I mean, it was a, it was quite a journey i suppose it, it was quite a bit, um an ironic journey and a poignant one for me at least because you know i was a screenwriter for many years and had never quite made it and been struggling um i don't quite know whether i had found the right medium yet if i'm honest but i i was getting very close to giving up about three or four years ago and i felt in a very kind of low place and i I felt like a creative failure i suppose um Mm -hmm. and i thought now would be a good time to sit down and write that book (laughs) do something else I've been putting off writing my whole life, and um, I did. Um, and uh, and then, it, I, you know, I, I didn't even have an agent, and I uh, I, I found Sam online, and I, I asked him if he would read my book, and he said he would, and he did. And then, about three days later, we met. And then, within a week, it had gone to auction in, in the UK, and six or seven publishers were bidding for it. And then, Shelodon preempted it in the US, and then uh, the uh, the movie scouts got hold of it, and then it, you know the movie site, movie rights sold, and, and then it continued to sell all these countries, and now it sold um forty three countries, which is uh, <laughs> I think is a, is a is a record for a debut. So it's um it's been a really insane journey. <laughs> if
0: I'm so happy. Alex, aside from that, you know all of this happening because it is a book that as as lots of well known people have said is you literally cannot put it down for a minute but as you started to write it so here you are a screenwriter you're used to that process you're used to thinking in dialogue and action if i if i remember my research properly you had not ever written a book no not even one that didn't go anywhere this was literally your first attempt yeah, at writing a book first. yeah yeah so, so when you sat down to write it Was it clear to you what the story would be about?
1: Yes, it was. I I grew up in Cyprus in the Mediterranean, and it's um, a very small island. And uh, I grew up before the Internet, and there was nothing to do in the summers but read. Um, And about the age of 13, I discovered Agatha Christie. And I read pretty much all of her books on the beach one summer, like one every two days, and um, and it was possibly the happiest experience I ever had. So I, I I knew that when I was going to write a novel, and I always knew that one day I would, that it would be that kind of novel, and I would try and replicate that experience of um you know that I'd had of reading write something for myself to read on the beach. So I knew, we knew it would be a thriller. Um, and then you know, the life experience, I, I I studied psychotherapy also, and I worked in a in a secure facility um, for teenagers for a couple of years. And um, it was an amazing experience because it's, um, I mean, just on a personal level, I, I had been quite messed up. And um, I had a lot of therapy myself. And then working with these, these, these troubled teenagers, um, these young people, and seeing them get better, it sort of helped me, I suppose, heal uh, the messed up teenage part of myself. Um, and that that is a really, probably the most formative experience I had. Um, and then later on when I was thinking, okay, well, if I'm going to write an Agatha Christie style thriller, I need, you know, an iconic enclosed location. Um, and so I thought of the psychiatric unit and I thought, yes, I can write about that convincingly instead of a detective. I can have a psychotherapist because I know how to write about that too. Um, you know, it came from there really, a lot of, a lot of planning, a lot of outlining, um, I, I, you know, I studied at the American Film Institute as a, as a screenwriter, and I had a very great uh, teacher um, who said you should always outline because it saves time. So you didn't end of doing draft after draft after draft. So I, I, was, I was very rigorous in knowing the story. I think with a detective story, which is the kind of book I like to write, I think you need to know all of the, the facts and all of the scenes and all of the beats mm. before you begin writing. Otherwise, you can get yourself in trouble.
0: Because I, I, in, in speaking with authors, I, you know, you obviously hear about a variety of styles, but th- there are writers, um, who write the way you just described, where there's a, a, an outline and a process and you know where you're going. And others say that the process is almost organic, but that isn't what right. works for you.
1: No, it's not what works for me. I mean, I did, you know, I allowed myself freedom when I was writing the dialogue. I didn't plan that. And I don't, you know, I'm writing writing on my second book now and I'm not planning the dialogue. I'm actually writing the scenes. But, you know, um, I'm I'm a big, you know, film fanatic and I love Billy Wilder. And one of the things he said is if you have a a scene without a a plot beat, that's a bad scene. Mm. And don't write it because you'll cut it. And so I very, at the very least, I need to know the building blocks of each chapter of the, in the story before I sit down and write them.
0: I like that line, plot beat. I've not heard that before. The other um, the other contributing factor in your book is the, as I understand it, Silent Patient is inspired by Aleste, the story of Alestes, a mythological tale by Euripides. That's correct. Yeah. And so about, there um, there are different period. variations of that story that you went through.
1: Yes, yeah, that's right.
0: Talk to us about how you decided on which element of the story would be most reflective in your novel.
1: Right. Well, again it comes down to my my childhood in Cyprus really because um the, the Greek myths are very much um Present there in the way that you know in England you might be taught Shakespeare at school Um, in in Cyprus and Greece you're taught you know uh, Euripides and and Homer and stuff like that. How nice! Yeah, I mean, very you know, very. I mean, as amazing as Shakespeare, you know, in different ways. Um, But I um, encountered this myth uh, of Alcestis and particularly the play by Euripides uh, when I was a very early teenager, and I um, I was haunted by it because it's about a woman who dies to save her husband and then she comes back to life again and is reunited with her husband at the end of the play, but she refuses to speak to him. And um, it's not often performed as a play because people don't know what to make of the silence. They mm. think it's problematic. They don't know whether she's happy, or whether she's angry, you know. It's all kinds of emotions that she could be experiencing. And for some reason, her silence captivated me. And I, um, I, I then tried to write it as a... Well, I tried it in various forms, as a short story, um, as, a, as a one-act play, as, as a short film. And then I... Um, it was only when I kind of connected the story with a psychiatric unit that suddenly it came to life. And I saw it as a film and mm. a book, you know, so it was a different kind of... It, it's odd how, you know, different strands of your experience come to come together in, 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 uh, in something. And I think that's possibly why the book works, because there was a lifetime of living behind the book, of living and thinking, before I actually sat down to try and write something.
0: And, and you know, as I... Um... As I read, you read the original story when you were thirteen.
1: Yeah. That's so that's right.
0: a pretty young age um, to be riveted by that kind of story. Do you do you recall talking to someone about it? Did it stay in your brain in a solitary way? What what form oh, that's very, did that interesting
1: take? Question. Um, well, I was taught it at school, you know, so that's where I encountered it, mm-hmm. um, and then. I got very into Euripides because his, you know, I think he's a precursor to someone, say, like uh, Tennessee Williams, you because know, he, write, he writes these amazingly complicated, fascinating, dark female characters that are, you know, literally centuries ahead of their time. Um, and I would read a lot of Euripides, and um, and I don't quite know. I don't think I did really talk to anybody about the Alcestis. It's, it's funny, um, and it stayed with me, and it was something to do with the silence, I think. And using silence as a kind of weapon and refusing to speak, refusing to communicate, um, which I think touched something deep inside me.
0: Mm. Um, Would you have described yourself at that age as someone um, thrifty with their words?
1: (laughs) Um, Possibly not thrifty with my words, but I was very solitary, and I still am. Um, Mm. And so I would spend a lot of time on my own, and I still do. And I... um, I think it was relating to that. It was kind of her isolation, but also, you know, if I'm honest, it was about being damaged too, because, uh, I I feel there's something about, because her husband lets her die in that, in that play and she loves him, but he lets her die. Mm -hmm. And there's something about feeling unlovable, unworthy that I related to, I think at that time in my life, for sure. Yeah.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Alex, are your parents alive? Yes, they are. And have they read the book?
1: They have. Yeah. It was lovely. I'm reading it. I mean, um, my mother's English and I I, I, I credit her with the reason that I'm a writer um, because uh, you know I grew up in a very small place um, out in a house that was jam-packed with books on every wall um, and they were all for some reason I didn't know how to talk about it because she brought pretty much a library's worth of English books of the best possible books to mm. this island and um, so I had a library to choose from and she she introduced me to all of my favorite writers like you know like even war or or, um, Angela Carter or Margaret Atwood, you know, she's the one that took them off the shelf and said, you must read this. Um, and, uh, and so it was, when she read the book, it meant the most of me, for me, than anybody else reading it, Was my mother reading it. And being, and the fact that she loved it, and she genuinely loved it, was very proud of, of me. And it made me, uh, I thought I myself getting emotional talking about it, but mm-hmm. it was, it was a really wonderful experience. And my dad, too, you know, he's, he's, a he's, a, he's not a reader, um, as such, um, and I kept telling him, you know, you don't have to read it. You don't feel you have to read it. You could listen to the audio book or you could, you know, or not at all. Um, but he did, and, uh, it, it, and he, he really enjoyed it. And that meant a lot to me that he had, you know, taken the time mm. and made the effort to, to sit down and read it, yeah. Great.
0: A- Alex, nice. you know, th- that's, that's lovely to hear. And one of the things that I was struck by in the book, so the book is very much about can you uh, recover and live a a full productive life after having been damaged. Yes, and and you refer to yourself as having been somewhat damaged or being attracted to the idea of people that are damaged. What do you think are the contributing factors in someone who is damaged being able to journey through that and come out the other side?
1: Hmm. That's, again, that's a very interesting question. Um, I think that it is about awareness. Um, so if we are able to hold our childhood in awareness or hold the past in awareness and see, see what was happened, what happened to us um, without necessarily assigning blame, it's just about seeing things clearly, mm. I think um, uh, you can move forward and you can get over stuff. And you know for me that was, that was many, many years of therapy. I had you know, maybe ten years of therapy. About twice a week, um, and I was fortunate to have a really incredible, compassionate therapist.
0: Which is the key. So,
1: that is the key. Without that, I don't think it's possible. Mm. Um, you know, and so I think it's, it's something to do with that, really. Otherwise, you just end up reenacting and doing, perform, getting stuck in the same patterns without realizing it. And it's a long, long process, isn't it? You know, I mean, I don't think anybody fully gets there. Y-
0: yeah, and, and it's interesting that you say this about your background because one of the characters that is comes just pops off the page as incredibly compassionate is uh theo's psychiatrist that he had been to
1: mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. he was mm-hmm. younger Ruth, yes
0: was that modeled on the person you had seen
1: Yeah, <laughs> you're very perceptive i must say <laughs> um yes uh, it, it, <laughs> uh, she was based on her um and i had a lovely uh, moment where i've not seen her in, in many years and um the day the book was published, I had emailed her, and I had told her this my old therapist about about this book and uh, I hadn't been in touch with her you know many years and I, um, and so the day the book was published the morning of the publication i i, I went over to her um, to her old you know consulting rooms and we had a coffee just as friends mm. not as not as you know, not as patient and doctor and I gave her a copy of the book and I told her how much she had helped me and how much it, everything she had done and meant for me, and how she had ended up in a book, and I hope she didn't mind. And she didn't, she laughed a lot, you know, and she said something I thought was very interesting, she said that um it's, it might be a way of, of getting some kind of therapy help to people who wouldn't necessarily read a therapy book.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and, and that made me, and I think maybe that's why young people are connecting with the book, you know, I, and that made me very happy to think that. So. I really hope that is true. Uh,
0: well, I found, one of the questions I had is, you know, reading so many of the scenes you know the facility the grove is uh, almost gothic in in sensibility the way you describe it on the page and the and the yeah. doctors and the patients that you describe are each riveting i mean there isn't a name that pops up in this book that i don't want to know more about did you do Added research about psychiatric facilities, or did your ex- your work experience at Northgate fully inform uh, what you needed to know to write the book?
1: It all came from my own experience. Mm. I um, you know, I don't. None of the none of the characters are from there. they were all in my my imagination, um, all based on me, you know. Um, but they're not. Um, but the the, the experiences of, of what it was like to be in an underfunded, crumbling psychiatric institution was something I knew all too well and so it was very um, somebody else asked me that about research and I just think you know, writing what you know about is helpful to a a large degree because I I was able just to tap into a whole year's worth of of knowledge and personal experience very easily um, that my next book is is requiring a lot more research
0: Do you want to tell (laughs) us about your next book Alex?
1: Yeah sure, it's um it's about a, a series of uh, murders at a, uh, at a Cambridge college, and it's about uh, high-achieving students. It's, a, it's, again, narrated by uh, a psychotherapist, a woman, um, this time a, a group therapist, whose niece is a student at the college, and she begins to suspect that the ancient Greek tragedy professor is murdering his students, and she's trying to stop him before uh, her niece gets killed. Mm. Um, and that's involved me going back to, uh, to, to Cambridge uh, quite a few times and, you know...
0: Well, you went to school, to right?
1: The, yeah, I did, but it was a long time ago. And, um, and I, you know, I wasn't paying much attention when I was there. So now I had to kind of go back and, and learn the geography of the place and, you know, and, and the history of the colleges and, and also the, what it's like to, to be there on a daily basis and to, to live there and all kinds of stuff. So it's, it was a lot of research this time. Whereas last time it was all kind of in my head. Already, mm. so it was a lot easier.
0: But I do think your um, previous therapist had an interesting point. I hadn't that hadn't occurred to me as I was reading it about the the sort of uh, collateral credit of people thinking about the role of therapy and how it can and can't help someone, and particularly yeah. the relationship with the um, therapist that uh, Faber uh, went to see. Yes. So, Alex, I, I should have asked you this in the beginning, because a lot of writers who are trying to get published ask this question all the time. When you chose Sam Copeland to slush your manuscript to, did you do research on which agent you thought might be attracted to your kind of book? Hmm. Um, or did you just pluck them out of the directory? I, you
1: know, I, I, I get a lot of people asking me a similar kind of question, Um and the question, the way they phrase it, is often to say, you know, how am I going to get an agent? How am I going to get an agent? Um, should I write for an agent? Should I, you know, should I let the agent know that I'm writing for them before I do? How do I contact them? You know, all of these things. And for years, when I was very young, I was I preoccupied with the same thing. Um, and then, uh, you know, I went through various screenwriting agents, and I, and I realized that, that none of it, none of that's true. The agent is not, you know, they're very important and helpful and powerful, but that's not the point. Um, so, when I was studying at the a s i my teacher said to me said to all of us, he said, "You know don't worry about the agents. just he said, write write a good script mm. and leave it in a parking lot is what he used to say, yeah, and it will get made um and so I always say to people they should focus on on the book like mm. I did i didn't even worry about any of that um
0: yeah
1: i I just had a I worked so hard on the book for several years until I got to a place where I thought it was okay <laughs> and then i um I looked up. To see which agents would accept the unsolicited inquiries, and I found a very good small agency in London that's very well respected and very old. And then I read an interview with um, with Sam that he'd given online, and I liked the sound of him. I thought he sounded like a really nice person. Um, <laughs> and uh, I then, you know, it was all very fortuitous. so I just followed my gut and, and, and went and went with him.
0: Did um, Sam say why he picked? He, did Sam say why he picked it out of the slush pile?
1: He just said that the email intrigued him,
0: mm-hmm. I think,
1: that I sent. Um, I think it's all about, you know, it's a little bit about your background, like a line or two. You mm-hmm. know, so I said I was a screenwriter, and then I said that this is my first book, and it was a psychological thriller about a woman who shoots her husband and then never speaks again. Yep. And that was pretty much it. And I said, would you like to read the first three chapters? And he said, yes, I would. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you seduced him. Well, perhaps, perhaps, yeah. Um, But um, it's uh, you know I think it's I do think it's about finding the right person to work with. I don't think that they can. Anyone's going to solve your life for you, Mm. you know.
0: Alex, I think that's smart advice because I've heard the most thoughtful of writers, um, when asked that question, often answer precisely the way that you just did. That Uh those those writers whose goal seems to be to be on a bestseller list have it backwards. Uh, that yeah. th- you, that you yeah. that isn't what you shoot for as a goal. What you shoot for as a goal is the absolutely best book that you can get written. Uh, you know, I'm not sure that uh, the intersection of talent and luck always works perfectly. And I yeah. worry sometimes no, right. about people whose luck doesn't match up to their talent and it doesn't get published or it gets published is in a way
1: why, yes, yes, uh, that
0: doesn't that doesn't give it its due because I think the other lovely thing that happened, the the lovely deserved thing that happened is that you ended up at Celadon, which is a new imprint for Macmillan. And they're only interested in publishing a couple of dozen books a year so that they are truly and wholesomely and full throatedly publishing each title.
1: Yeah. I think that was a great stroke of luck on my part. Um, because coming from the film industry where you're used to a lot of, you know, I don't want to be rude, but a lot of very big egos and often it feels in a room it's about who can shout loudest. And that's mm. often a man, if I'm honest with you. Um, to suddenly be encountering rooms of these incredibly intelligent, mostly women, <laughs> who um, listen to you and don't interrupt you and take you seriously and want to publish great work and build a career it's uh i it it was i couldn't quite believe it at first mm. um and i you know uh, jamie and deb are just are such amazing people because they really you know i kept i kept mistrusting it because i was so i was so used to people being you know <laughs> fake and um and trying to use you in some way and i eventually i just but now i really do believe that they do want to yeah to have a career and they want to work with me forever and, and they want to help me and it's it's um it's marvelous. Yeah. They're, it's, they're great people. I'm very it's pretty
0: lovely. Yeah. So, Alex, it would be remiss of me not to ask you uh, how the process of writing a novel is different from being a screenwriter.
1: Right. Well, I think it really liberated me, if I'm honest with you, because um, I think I had always perhaps had a facility for plot, but I had been unable to access anything deeper. And, um it was only through writing a novel that I was able to slow down and get into somebody's head. And the moment I did that, suddenly everything changed for me. Mm. So I think that's a big part of it. I think, I think with with films, the tendency is to keep moving, keep moving, keep going, um, and then uh, you, you can sacrifice depth, or at least I, I did. You know, I think other people are a lot more talented than I am. Um, but then with with a novel, I I gave it a book to a friend of mine who's a critic, and he said to me, "It's quite clear that you're a novelist and not a dramatist." Um, and, I, and I, that was good to hear because I did feel like suddenly I thought, oh, yeah, I can do this. Mm. <laughs> Instead of it being like putting teeth, I, I suddenly felt like, oh, OK, I, I can do this. I can write. I can write in sight So now yeah.
0: the irony, Alex, is going to be the film's been uh, the book's been optioned for a film. You've yeah. been hired to be the screenwriter. So will you figure out how to take the depth out or will you change as a screenwriter to figure out how to put the depth in?
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I think the latter, I, I, you know, I don't have much of an ego anymore. And so I'm fully prepared to kind of park that at the door and listen and learn and take the whole thing apart and put it together again as a film. And, um, and I also think that, you know, the people I'm working with at Plan B are insanely talented and they make the best films in Hollywood, in my opinion. And so it's, as a, they, you know, they hired me as a novelist and a screenwriter, but I think the screenwriter part of me is going to be learning so much through this mm-hmm. process. So it's going to be amazing.
0: It'll be interesting to watch Alex. This competition between the Alex, the screenwriter, and Alex, the novelist. And and in which medium do you do you most like the way your brain works?
1: I, you know, it's hard to say. I, I, having said, I, I wrote the book to get away from from scripts. I am actually now thinking about writing another a screenplay um, mm. separately, um, and uh, and I'm and I'm also planning my next two books at the same time. So. Um, I would say that writing the, the novel was the most pleasurable experience I've mm. ever had because it was just me uh, alone, and I was sort of, you know, able to just uh, control everything mm. and, and not have everything go wrong, as the way things tend to with films. Because um, you're dealing with a committee in films and everything. has so many people involved, and, and through, you know, with the best men in the world, uh, things can just go wrong on a kind of uh, production level that's beyond your control. When it's just when it's just you and the keyboard, things don't go as wrong, so it's um it, it's easier.
0: Have you started writing the screenplay for the movie yet?
1: <laughs> no, no, I haven't not yet. We're not we're not quite there yet. Um, we want to try and get a director attached first. I think
0: I'll be fascinated after you do that to see if you manage the process differently as a result of having written the novel, or will you become frustrated by the Screenplay by committee process being corrosive to your novel?
1: Yeah, I don't think it will necessarily be like that this time. Um, I think when you're generally, you know, making a movie, it's it's not. I, I think if it's not adapted from your own book, you probably have much less p- control and power. Um, mm-hmm. Not that that's important, but I think um, I, I think I, I've learned enough now to be able to stand my ground. More.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, yeah.
0: I'm fascinated when I interview authors whose books are being adapted into movies, but they're not the screenwriter.
1: Well, I can understand that in a way, because I feel that it, you know, I, I don't think I, I will adapt my second book as, as a screenplay, mm. um, should, should anybody want it. <laughs> um, I don't, because I, I, I can see that you want to let go and focus on writing the book and not get bogged down in a um, in the, in the movie. Yeah. However, this opportunity of working with with Plan B was, and particularly Jeremy, the client that was producing it, um, it was too it was too wonderful for me to say no to. I just thought, yes, I have to, I have to, you I have, have, to, to do I it. have this experience. Yeah, yeah.
0: You have to do it, um, Alex. My last question is a question I ask all our uh, guests, and that is, what's the book that changed your life? Oh wow! Well,
1: I wish you'd given me your question first. <laughs> <laughs> have talk about that. The book that changed my life. Um, okay, there's so many I could choose from. I'm trying to think about something that's more applicable to uh, the asylum patient. It's probably a book called uh, The Drama of Being a Child mm. um, by Alice Miller, M-I-L-L-E-R. And she is a, uh, she's dead now. She was a Swiss-German uh, psychoanalyst, and this book was a bestseller in the 70s. And um, It's basically looking at, at, your, at a childhood through your own childhood through a compassionate point of view. Mm. And I use a quote from her in the book, um, and she says, the point of therapy you know, is not to correct the past, but to allow the patient to confront his own history and to grieve over it. Um, mm. And when I read that book, probably I was, oh my gosh, a long time ago, I was probably maybe in my late 20s. Um, and it blew my mind, because I'd never seen anybody say things before. Um, so yeah. that's probably that had the most effect on me of any book I'd ever read, yeah.
0: Mm, that may, you know, that that book, I think, has had a profound impact probably on millions of people. Uh, and totally, it was groundbreaking. Totally. It was groundbreaking when it came out.
1: I, I, I couldn't have, you do, you right, good. I mean I couldn't have written The Silent Patient without that book. Mm. Because that's what The Silent Patient is about, too. It's like, can we get over our childhood? And that's the same question that Alice Miller was asking. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think it's a... Uh, I think it's, it's, it's a really important book, and everybody should read it.
0: Mm. Well, speaking of important books, I uh, we've been speaking with Alex Michelides and his just the, w- one of the best psychological thrillers, I think, uh, that I've read in years. I have lots of company more expert than myself in in that opinion. And for anybody who wants to sit down and read a smart book that they can't put down. Make sure you don't have like any work that you need to do within the next number of <laughs> hours. It'll take you to write uh, the book. And it's, Alex, it's been a pleasure to have the conversation with you. And Thank you so much for making the time. We look forward to your next books and your movie. And I'm thrilled that my friends, Jamie and Deb at Celadon, um, picked up this book and Sam Copeland picked it up out of the slush pile and we all get to read it.
1: Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed talking to you. It's been a really interesting conversation.
0: Thanks again to Alex Amicalides. Be sure to pick up a copy of The Silent Patient at your favorite independent bookstore. It's available right now. Make sure you have nothing else to do when you start this book because you won't want to go to work or do anything else until you finish it. And in closing today, I'd like to take a moment to let you know that there's going to be a change. Just the Right Book will no longer be produced by Collisions Media. So that feels sad, and in many ways it is. It's been a great partnership um, over these last two years. But don't worry, uh, because we will be returning at a new home and you'll be able to keep listening to our podcasts and our interviews. And we've love to hear from you about any changes you'd love to see in the show. So here's how you can keep up to date on all our plans in case there's a hiccup in our move to a new home. You know how that happens. So in order to keep up to date, make sure to follow R.J. Julia's Instagram or Facebook account or uh, look on our website at rjjulia.com or you can write to me at books at rjjulia.com And let us know what you want to hear on the show. And we'll keep you posted about where we land. I'm I'm thinking the move will probably take two or three weeks. It could be a month. But I'm very excited about being able to launch another season of the show. I'd really like to thank all of you. We have had an incredible loyalty. We past the million download uh, mark which is kind of crazy to think about we've enjoyed your support your notes um, our authors and publishers have appreciated uh, the support that you've given to the, to the show and to the authors and I am very grateful. I'm also grateful to Collisions for having produced this podcast over these years. We've learned a lot in the two years of doing it. Uh, This podcast has been produced by Collisions, the podcast division of CRN International. We're grateful to them. I am particularly grateful to Pat Keo, who has been our audio engineer, who always works hard to edit this properly, get the sound right. And of course, I'd like to particularly thank Christina Torres. She has been our producer. So until next time, thank you all so much for listening and stay tuned. Watch us on rjjulia.com for any updates.